Hello and welcome to our second episode of The Two View, the cutting-edge podcast for emergency and urgent care nurse practitioners and physician assistants. My name is Mike Sharma. I started my PA career in the U.S. Army, including a deployment to Afghanistan. Now I practice emergency and urgent care medicine in Dallas, Texas. With me is my co-host, nurse practitioner Martha Roberts. Martha. Hi, Mike. Happy to be your co-host. And we had a great first episode. Got a lot to talk about this show. Um, yeah, I just started my COVID hero relief work here in Sacramento, and I'm in the process of updating our new procedures website, theproceduralist.org, and I'm gearing up for some of our courses here, um, prepping for the Center for Medical Education, and we're going to bring you some really great boot camps this year, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the show and put it in our liner notes. I am thrilled to be live with everybody this year. Today in the podcast, Martha and I are going to talk about some of the 2020 changes to basic life support and advanced cardiac life support, BLS and ACLS. Then in our second segment, Martha is going to talk about when a great outdoor activity goes wrong in a segment on how to remove fish hooks. As always, there will be great video at www.theproceduralist.org. We're then going to answer our trivia question from the last episode about what may be the perfect ER drug and why it got a bad rap. Next, since we're going to have a uh, friend a very good friend, join us. Um, we're going to reveal his name now, so you remember to tune in a little bit later here. He's our uh, faculty partner, a winning educator, creator of the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, Dr. Ken Milne. He's going to pop on and have a conversation with us about tetracaine and corneal abrasions, and then we're going to round it off by talking about whether physicians, PAs, or NPs order more tests in the ER, and we'll get his third view. The oblique view is the, the view we'd like to call it you get it mike yeah as a connoisseur of dad jokes i fully approve of that martha <laughs> finally we are going to end the show with your questions and feedback we'll address the iv versus im routes for ceftriaxone for the treatment of gonorrhea that was a hot topic uh, from our first podcast about the cdc guidelines you know you know the guidelines but is it right to veer off from the guidelines that say i am dosing uh, in this situation and lastly, we'll announce uh, the winner and answer our trivia question last month and give you a new question to ponder. As always, you can find our detailed show notes at our website. It's twoview.fireside.fm. That is the number two, twoview.fireside.fm. All right, Mike, let's jump right into the AHA guidelines. I have done this lecture for about five years at our boot camps and our courses. And I recall back in 2019, there not being many changes from the 2015 guidelines. So what do we have going on now? Yeah, like I mentioned, it was in late 2020 where the American Heart Association, by the way, headquartered here in Dallas, Texas, released its newest guidelines for CPR and emergency cardiovascular care. The, the last big update was in 2015. And now if I had to pick a word that started with a letter R to describe the updates, I would not pick revolutionize. I would pick more something like reaffirm. But there are some important changes to know about. Let's also talk about some hot trends in BLS and ACLS, how the AHA thinks about them, and how you can play an important part next time you're working a code, even if you're not the one running the code. You know, first, we are big proponents of evidence-based medicine, having a reason why you're doing something. But, you know, how much of these changes are based on evidence? Only about 1% of the recommendations are based on what the AHA called 
high-quality evidence from multiple RCTs. The AHA acknowledges that limited evidence and expert opinion were the basis for about two-thirds of these recommendations. So more research definitely needs to be done about this important topic. Let's get into some of the hot topics I mentioned. The AHA generally reaffirms that early, high-quality CPR and early defibrillation are the two biggest keys to success with returning patients to ROSC, that's return of spontaneous circulation, and ultimately getting them to a favorable neurological outcome at some point. Let's talk double sequential defibrillation, you know, shocking the patient with two monitors at the same time. If early defib is one of the chains in the uh, links of the chain of survival, you know, maybe more juice is good. Right now, the evidence of this remains weak, and the AHA's official stance is that teams may consider this strategy. How about getting IVs versus IOs? You know, a lot of people are going first line with IO as their parental access. Some studies suggest a decreased efficacy, but there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials out there. And also, you know, an IO doesn't necessarily equal an IO. There's different devices, different sites you could use. They may not all function the same way. In the end, AHA stance is that it believes it is reasonable for teams to first attempt IV access. When those are unsuccessful or not feasible, there is a weaker recommendation for the teams to consider establishing IO. And that was our strategy in Afghanistan. You know, we gave the medics two tries at getting IV access, and then we're going to go to an interosseous line because we had other stuff to do, just like you have other stuff to do during a code. There's only so much real estate around a patient. How about point-of-care ultrasound POCUS, which we love and we teach at the Center for Medical Education? You know, that can be used to identify, potentially, certain of those H's and T's that we've heard about in our ACLS research that can uh, lead to poor outcomes, or ROSC, identify ROSC sometimes. But the AHA recommends against using it for prognostication or determining futility of effort. So certain indications there, certain recommendations against that. How about this? We've seen these graphics of the links in the chain of survival for the different aspects of our cardiovascular care here. There is a new link in the chain now. It's called recovery and survivorship. You know, you get somebody a ROSC and yeah, everyone like kind of high fives and fist bumps here, but that's not the end for this patient. That's only the beginning, the, the end of the beginning for, for this patient's cardiovascular care. Now, uh, Martha, that Paramedic 2 trial that you heard about, we all heard about in 2018, covered the use of epinephrine in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and it hit like a bomb because it suggested there was no difference in survival with favorable neurological outcome over placebo compared to epinephrine. And I think it really, like, soured folks on the use of epi in cardiac arrest. Can you go over what the AHA was thinking about uh, epi in cardiac arrest? Yeah, so the use of epi in cardiac arrest, if non-shockable, the AHA is strengthening the recommendation basically to consider giving epi as soon as feasible. In shockable rhythms, we are still considering epi after the second shock has failed. To me, this kind of emphasizes the importance of prioritizing shocks. But what about ventilation? That's the other thing I want to talk about. Ventilation and resuscitation, we've all heard about the dangers of ventilating patients too fast. That causes increased thoracic pressure, decreased venous return. In adults, we're still giving one breath every six seconds with um, uh, intubation or a supraglottic airway with continuous chest compressions. Two breaths every 30 compressions with bag valve mask in BLS. So based on a multi-center observational trial, uh, 
that there was, they showed there was improved survival to hospital discharge for infants with um, uh, intubation with faster ventilation rates. This is a change. The AHA now recommends one breath every two to three seconds for infants and children with an advanced airway. Yeah, it's so tricky. We talk about overventilation, but in this situation, going faster than previously recommended is actually seen to have better outcomes for survival and hospital discharge. Here are some more special circumstances that are highlighted by the AHA. Opioid overdose, that's a very common thing we see. They've modified their flow chart from the 2015 guidelines. Now, if someone is just kind of bradying down on respirations, but they have a pulse, obviously the focus there is supporting their ventilations and respirations. Open the airway, give rescue breaths, give naloxone, okay? But if they are pulseless and apneic, well, guess what? They're just as dead as anybody else, right? Don't just give naloxone and wait. If they're pulseless and apneic, you start CPR. This is like cardiac arrest. Start CPR. Shock early. Consider naloxone after those things are taken care of. Right. Okay. And, you know, let's talk naloxone real quick. We can look up a lot of stuff, and we have time to look up a lot of stuff. But when someone needs Narcan, they need it quickly. This is 0.4 milligrams to 2 milligrams every two to three minutes. Like, you know, it's important to know that one. And I know some folks like to go aggressive on Narcan and just like, let's just give them the two milligram, the full Monty here, uh, especially when they're thinking about, oh, maybe some synthetic opioids are being suspected that are harder to get through with Narcan, but you can't unring the naloxone bell. Once you've given it, it's given and you yeah, have to ding, kind of ding, like, ding. <laughs> yeah, you got to ride the whirlwind after that. Okay. So I'm hesitant to give the big dose and potentially cause a safety issue with someone getting up and swinging after you rip their highway from them. I'd rather give a small dose more often. You can give it every two minutes. So give a small dose. Wait two minutes. Give a small dose again. That two minutes goes by It goes very by quickly. fast, yeah. Well, I, w- I want to jump in and actually also say something about pregnancy. So in pregnancy, oh, you're doing yeah, you're doing CPR. Interesting studies that show women get less out-of-hospital CPR than men. And I wonder if some of the issue that um, caused this, uh, there might even be more pronounced in pregnant women. If you have adequate rescuers and the fundus is at or above the umbilicus, someone can perform left lateral uterine displacement. Something to keep in mind. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's good. Let's talk briefly some medication changes. This is another change. In the adult bradycardia pathway, we all recall 0.5 milligrams was the first dose. Now atropine is dosed IV one milligram bolus is your first dose for adult bradycardia that can be repeated every three to five minutes to a max of three milligrams. Dopamine has also changed for adult bradycardia. Uh, the now infusion rate is going to be five to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute. We're titrating that to patient response and uh, you taper as needed. Okay. Well, how about this? You know, uh, Martha, do you where you practice, do you commonly run the code or are you not even in the room? How does that work for you usually? It's totally different for every hospital I've ever been in. Uh, you know, <clears throat> depends. When I was working in a large trauma center and we had multiple trauma rooms, uh, if we had three codes coming in, we divided and conquered. And of course, there was always an attending physician or a trauma surgeon that was rounding and, and working on helping everybody. But it really truly depends. When I worked in the rural uh, community. I was the one with the ultrasound at the bedside, um, taking a look at the heart. Um, sometimes I was even pushing medications because we had a very small team there, um, compressions, whatever. So 
really dependent on the on the place. But now we have to worry about COVID nineteen guidelines if if we're out there um, doing rescue work, um, which now I'm going to have to worry about as well. <laughs> going to do this work. But I'm excited. Yeah, we have COVID-19 guidelines on the website here as far as the recommendations for CPR. I just want to throw in a quick plug for how we can contribute to a code if we're not running it. First off, know the guidelines, be smart on the guidelines, work in the teamwork uh, paradigms that they su- they suggest. Consider acting as a CPR coach because we know how important not just CPR High-quality CPR is important. You've got to make sure that the compressors are going fast enough, deep enough. People are switching out here. Sometimes you gently helping out people with that can offload the team leader cognitively so they can focus on other things. Consider downloading a metronome app for your phone so someone can compress to the beat of the metronome. Of course, that's between 100 and 120 beats per minute. Right. You know, I think all that's great, but I'm not opening up that app when I'm giving compressions. No offense, Mike, but I will tell you. You know, I think I will because, you know, we we talk about like, oh, hey, sing a song in your head, like sing Staying Alive or sing Can't Stop the Feeling by JT, right? Those are all, you know, in that beat per minute. But I think even more accurate than that is a metronome. I'm considering it. I think I'm going to pull it out during my next thing. It might be a little less obnoxious. Well, I mean, it's, I don't think you have to study everything. Will a metronome that mandatorily beats at 110 beats per minute be more accurate than you sing a song in your head? I think that's probably pretty clear. You know, So I'm going to pull it out on my next code, and I'll let you know how it goes. All right, fine. You know, The other thing, I, the tip I like to give people is that don't fiddle around with the EMR while you're trying to do a code. I do understand that these patients may go to the cath lab, they may have ROSC, you may transfer the patient. I understand there's all that stuff and you need a chart, you need to print it out. But sometimes just writing down exactly the time from looking at a a watch when you gave meds and when you did certain things is just good enough. Don't stress yourself out. All right. Speaking of not stressing yourself out, let's move to our next segment. This is where we're going to talk about our procedural pearl of the month. And this month we're going to talk about fish hooks. So as I look at this. I chose this for several reasons. One, we have great footage of this procedure and a great case to go through. We actually have a couple cases. But also because there's so many outdoor fishing trips during the pandemic, people being outside. Um, February is actually typically the month that we go down to the CCME course in the Keys. We fish. Um, My dad and I, we do a lot of barracuda fishing. So this is kind of paying a little tribute to that because we can't go. Now, we are experienced fisher people, uh, anglers, and I haven't had a fish hook stuck in anywhere in my body in many years. But I will tell you, when I was seven, Jim, my dad, removed one for me. Uh, He had to clean the site first, so he poured some vodka over my head, and my mom was not happy. And then he removed the lure on the banks of Lake Champlain after I casted it right into my head. But anyways... (laughs) A few months back, uh, we we looked at this case of a fish hook in this guy's earlobe. It was a fascinating case, great patient, and I always like to give a shout out to the patients because they are so kind to give us their images and let us record them. He was really awesome. So I'm going to put a link on the proceduralist.org so you can take a look at that. And there's also a brand new video showing you how to remove a fish hook from a finger. And the images are really great. The video's um, pretty clear on how to do this. And we also included two um, to three different alternatives to removing fish hooks. Uh, Jim goes through some of these. And 
one of the, my other tips is that when you take these fish hooks out, you don't always need to get an x-ray. They're sort of hit or miss. So it kind of depends on the level of the depth of the hook. And you also don't need to put these people on antibiotics post fish hook removal unless it truly appears infected or it's old or the patient's at super high risk for infection. Speaking about how to prevent infection from these wounds and something in general, talking about puncture wounds in general, yes, you need to wash out the insertion, the puncture site gently. You know, five minutes soap and water is kind of my guideline there. But we don't want to pressure irrigate it like you might do for other lacerations because other lacerations, you do need, you know, volume under pressure because pressure irrigating a puncture wound is just going to embed whatever gunk you know, for lack of a better word, is into that wound. And the tissues kind of balloon up because the, the fluid can't get out. So don't pressure wash puncture wounds. Gentle cleaning is good. Soap and water, five minutes. Don't soak the wounds. And also, don't sew them up. These are puncture wounds. They can heal by secondary tension very well. Right. Um, you know, also don't struggle for hours trying to get the hook if it won't come out. I want you to check out Jim's video and his three approaches. He shows you on a piece of steak... And yes, he ate the steak afterwards. He said it was delicious. So. Oh, man. Well, you know, something else to consider. Ask folks who can, you know, utility folks, you know, people who work in like the HVAC or plumbing, can you kind of get some sharp cutting shears or maybe you've got some more trauma-minded techs or nurses or even you can get your own sharp cutting shears so you can just cut off the barb and we're going to have it for you on the video in the proceduralist.org. Sometimes one technique you push the hook all the way through the skin so the bar pops out and you cut it off, you know. Now, the ER is all about improvisation, frankly. One time, I used a ring cutter. I had a powered ring cutter because this hook was so thick. I think they were catching, it must have been like a shark hook or some sort of dinosaur they were trying to catch. Like, it was ridiculous. It broke the trauma shears that someone let me borrow. So I had to do something kind of improvisational. So another tip, a powered ring cutter also works good to cut through these hooks. Uh, our video is going to show you how to do this without a sweat, without a struggle. And you know what? It also shows Martha struggling a little bit because you know what we all kind of struggle but as long as we kind of think of new ways to do things shift to our plan b's and c's in the end we're going to find success look you can just say that i failed in the first like three attempts you can see me in the video i'm kind of <laughs> no, like gosh you didn't darn fail. it i can't, <laughs> can't get it you but found two ways that don't work you didn't fail at all i think one of the videos i must have tried seven different ways to get out the hook but i made the track so big from pushing it through and pulling it out that eventually it just kind of like fell out because it had made such a big track but anyway the point is is that um you know sometimes our our work feels very robotic uh and we get a little frustrated um but uh always remember to numb these patients up because the worst thing you could be doing is like this patient is in a lot of pain while you shove this uh hook in and out of their finger and remember rig blocks are not always necessary in the hand you can just directly numb the site with a little bit of lidocaine but okay that's it for the procedural pearl let's move nice. on now to our next segment. What do we got, Mike? Yeah. So um, I think you were going to read the question from our trivia oh, right. question. And I have to winner. remind everybody. Right. Okay. So uh, in our first podcast, we talked about introducing a trivia question. What controversial drug was given a black box warning for prolonged QT and torsades in 2012 and now has been declared by which organization to be effective in safe treatment for the use of nausea, vomiting, headache, and agitation. Okay, that was our first question. Well, the winner of this trivia question was Sherrick Cunningham from Texas. All right. Sherrick, 
congratulations. We're going to send you a awesome copy of the EMRA pain management guide. Um, but let's talk a little bit about this drug droperidol. Okay. And Sherrick wanted to give a good shout out to the Inner Service PA Program Class 1-09. That's our shout out from Sherrick and the Class 1-09. You know, a lot of young people, uh, you know, like you and me, Martha, have heard of droperidol, but don't understand the hype. Now, imagine a drug that treated pain that was refractory to opioid uh, administration, nausea, vomiting, headache, agitated patients, vertigo. Uh, I mean, Martha, do you ever treat patients in the ER with those complaints? I certainly do. Um pretty much on the daily. However, I do just want to pop in one interesting thing about this drug oh, yeah. and some and some of the studies. There's a guy, his name is Silverstein, and if you we'll talk about this in the liner notes as well, but he is this huge headache guy. He was at Thomas Jefferson University. I actually saw him as a patient. I had horrible migraines in my early 20s. I went to go see him and his headache clinic. His headache clinic was a five-hour appointment. So not only did you see him, you saw um, a nutritionist, you saw a psychiatrist, you saw a neurologist. Sometimes you even saw a neurosurgeon. Um, The list goes on and on, but it was this really intense appointment. And uh, this drug uh, was actually offered to me. Um, And I can't say it helped my headache, but you know, Maybe I had a lot more problems at that point in my life. But the point is, is that I think it's fascinating that this drug is used for headache and it's at small doses, 2.5 to 2.75 milligrams. But anyway, I digress. Go ahead, continue. Yeah, you know, when we're talking about droperidol in the emergency medicine setting and not necessarily an outpatient headache clinic. So, you know, maybe there's different things going on there. So, you know, the answer to the trivia question is droperidol. Uh, you know, the, the first vitamin D before dilaudid, and that was by the AAEM. That was the organization, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, who uh, giving it props, and we'll talk about that soon. You know, so this this wonder drug, that's what droperidol was for maybe our more, let's say, experienced in terms of age or years of practice, emergency medicine colleagues. You know, it fixes so many of the things that we try to fix in the ER. Now, droperidol is a dopamine agonist. It's broadly defined as like an antipsychotic, like uh, haloperidol, haldol, that we give a fair amount here. The writing was kind of on the wall for haloperidol when the FDA issued a black box warning in 2001. They said, oh, yeah, sure, you can use droperidol. Just make sure you do an EKG beforehand and then monitor the patient for two to three hours after administration. You know, I can't really imagine a lot of ER clinicians are thrilled about doing this, especially for an agitated patient. Like, sir, can you stop being agitated so I can do an EKG on you? (laughs) You know, and this was for concerns over QT prolongation and specifically torsade de point, which can be a fatal arrhythmia. Okay, this was based on case reports, but reviewing the case reports, three quarters were from outside the U.S. There was not a lot of data on possible confounding factors. And a lot of these cases of torsade de point were with cases where they used doses of 25 milligrams, up to 600 milligrams of droperidol, way higher than we would use. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm giving 600 milligrams of like ibuprofen, but not like droperidol. So way higher than we would use in the ER. All right. When you've got a drug with a black box warning, you're asking for trouble if any sort of bad outcomes happen when you're using it. So a lot of folks quit using it. The main manufacturers stopped making it. Well, in 2018, American Reagent is a company that is making Joperidol again, 
And might I say that we could be entering what I like to call the Jopera Renaissance, right? Oh, like the, re- God, the Renaissance, please. right? How we, I'm going to make it a thing, the Jopera Renaissance, okay? Please don't. No, don't make that a thing. It's, it's going to be a thing. <laughs> yep, Twitter, look for the hashtag Jopera Renaissance, okay? Uh, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine came out in 2013 saying this drug is effective in nausea, headache, agitation, and they did not support all the EKG and telemetry uh, stuff, for lack of a better word, that the FDA wanted. And that giving up to 10 milligrams seemed to be as effective and safe as other medications you'd give for these cases. They reviewed, you know, this versus midazolam versus compazine. And Joperidol stacked up very well in terms of safety and efficacy. They did not see the QT prolongation, the torsada points. In fact, they saw more severe side effects in the midazolam group, which we give all the time with very little concerns. You know, uh, other studies show that we could get similar or better effect and faster effect with droperidol alone than with haloperidol, which we give all the time in our B52, the Benadryl, haloperidol, lorazepam combo that we're giving for agitated patients. So if I have an agitated patient, I want something that works better and faster than whatever we have here. Yeah, you know, so the drug may cause uh, QT prolongation. Of course, the studies show that this is really in the first 30 seconds of administration. And we give a ton of drugs that potentially cause um, QT prolongation, like odansetron, haloperidol, furosemide, fluoroquinolones. Oh, fluoroquinolones. Okay, so another reason to not use fluoroquinolones. Great, I will put that on the list. Yeah, so as much as we joke about how how it is that the perfect ER drug, just like any other medication before it, giving it, going through the patient's health history and medication history, check for other red flags that may contribute to any underlying QT prolongation already. We have the statement in our show notes, as well as an even deeper dive um, by emdocs.net on droperidol. They talk about droperidol study, get this, involving putting rabbits through a spinning vortex to induce vertigo and even float the possibility of a conspiracy theory with regards to why black box warnings came about. Tons of next level goodness. So our website, um, if you want to check out again, the liner notes for this is twoview.fireside.fm or just search twoview emergency fireside and it pops up real quick. All right, let's get on to our final segment today, and we are going to discuss the third view, the oblique view. Let's go ahead and teleport Ken into the podcast to discuss our two controversial topics this month. Hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. This is this is my oblique view, but I want to know who's the AP and who's the lateral view among the two of you. Uh, I mean... I, I hate my lateral view, frankly. So, Martha, could, would you be the lateral view sure. and I'll be the AP? Sure. I'm, okay. There we go. Nailed it. And I'm oblique. Decided. There we go. Of course, you have to watch us on our video blog to be able to see that. That's on YouTube, folks. Yes. Okay. So, Ken, we want to first ask you about a recent paper that you covered on the SGEM and ask you, why is the topic of topical anesthetics in the eye for simple corneal abrasions still so controversial and tell us about your poll. So you actually reached out to me and said, Ken, why are you covering this? Um, We've known about this for many, many years. Uh, I can't believe everyone is not practicing this way because the best evidence shows that using topical anesthetic, so topical anesthetic for a short course, and I'm going to define that as less than 48 hours. So a short course 
for a simple corneal abrasion. So you have the correct diagnosis. It's a traumatic, simple corneal abrasion using a topical anesthetic like tetracaine for one to two days. Everyone agrees, I think, that it's safe. Or sorry, I'd back that up. That's the controversy. See, I got it backwards. Everyone agrees that it works. You put a topical anesthetic on a corneal abrasion and people can open their eye and see, right? It's, it's like, oh, finally, that searing pain is gone. But what people have been uh, discussing is, is it safe or not? And it usually falls into two camps. You have ophthalmologists who have for decades said that this is a dangerous thing, adverse events, badness happens, corneal ulceration, opacification of the cornea, basically, they'll go blind. Um, and in their practice experience, I won't invalidate it, they see bad cases. Um, and in the other camp, we have clinicians who work in the emergency department going, these people are screaming sometimes in pain, in terrible pain, and we want to do something that helps, and we have this effective medication. And so how do we bridge that? And I think we have to bridge that with you know, some common ground that we both want the patients to have the best outcome, so alleviate the immediate pain, but prevent long-term complications. And so that's the common ground that we have for these patients that we want the best. And what's the best evidence show? So why, why did I cover this again? Well, let's jump ahead to the Twitter poll. The Twitter poll that I put up on this episode, it was two-thirds said, no, don't do it, and one-third said yes. I, Were you surprised, I think Martha? that's crazy. I was just bringing it up on the phone here to, um, to take a look again. I think that's just, it's absurd. And what did uh, Dr. Glockenflecken tell you? <laughs> so Dr. Glockenflecken, uh, so this is a, a great example of collaborative care. And I'm, I'm so happy that you invited me on your podcast with APPs because we work together best when we work together as a team. And that applies to everyone in the healthcare um, environment. And so I think we're all on team patient. And so this was Dr. Glaucoma Flecken. I think I put an extra syllable <laughs> in there. Glaucoma Flecken. And he's an ophthalmologist. His first name's Will. He's an ophthalmologist, and actually we, we sort of met sort of like through Twitter about four or five years ago talking about corneal abrasions, and he was like, well, no, the dogma, you know, he didn't say dogma, but, you know, this is something that we can't recommend as ophthalmologists. And we had a bit of a back and forth. We met up in Vegas at a mm. conference, so I can't talk about that. <laughs> um, but uh, through our interactions and dialogue and sharing good arguments good arguments, logical arguments, and the evidence, he was like, actually, you know what? A short course, short course, less than 24 to 48 hours, for a you got the right diagnosis. It's a simple corneal abrasion. Yeah, that is effective. Yeah, and it's probably safe and okay to do. So he came full circle. So he came on the podcast to discuss it. And uh, we did a, criti a structured critical appraisal of a randomized control trial that was powered for efficacy, not for safety, that showed that it was efficacious. People used less opioids, prescribing opioids, uh, uh, the number of tablets they took went down, their pain went down significantly compared to placebo, and there was no increase in adverse events. Yeah, um, 
I definitely like I, I'm still astounded, you know, that people aren't doing this one to two days of topical anesthetic for someone um, is not a big deal. Well, I, I have um, I have some insight into that. Uh, I don't know what Mike's experience has been, but have you ever been talked down to, berated, yelled at, perchance, by a physician? Oh, um, no, that actually never happened ever in my career. Uh, it's always been and actually— And that should never happen. Exactly, right. <laughs> it should never happen. But I got feedback from physicians, from emergency physicians— on an emergency uh, medicine on my own uh, Facebook page saying that they had been berated from another physician and talked down to by another physician. And, and you know, the, the concern about medical legal and that you would be reported or that they were reported to their quality committee, those types of things. And these are physicians to physicians and being told that you are not a peer to the ophthalmologist if you're the emergency physician. And you know, whenever I'm spoken to like that, and I am, I'm, I'm a, you know, I've got, look at me. I mean, Shocking. those who are watching the, watching the video, I have a lot of privilege, well. don't I? Just look at me, look at the, look at the cover of the book, right? And even I get yelled at and stuff like that. And I never want to make anyone else feel that yeah. way. We're on team patient. Let's look at the best evidence, reflect on your clinical practice. What's your clinical experience? What environment are you working in? I'm a Canadian physician. I'm also a rural physician. You know, I have to look out the window and I'll do that right now. We've got a snowstorm nice. right now. We've got a whiteout. What's a Bayesian approach to, should I send this person with a simple corneal abrasion down a snowy highway to see an ophthalmologist? Or should I just say, here's 24 hours of tetracaine and that's all you get. You don't get any more, so it can't be used for a month. You've only got enough drops for 24 hours. Uh, what's the chance of them having a bad outcome compared to them driving off the road in a rural area in a snowstorm? So it takes place right. in a context and then ask the patient, what do you value? What do you prefer? And the vast majority, and Martha and I spoke about this before. Oh my God, I just need to get some sleep. It's killing me. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm up all night. You know, I just I just want to add there that my clinical pearl for the treatment of simple uh, corneal abrasion is that, of course, I give the cocktail including 24 to 48 hours of topical tetracaine or preparacaine, but I'm giving patients two Valium, five milligrams each. I tell them to go home, take a Valium, five milligrams, go to sleep. There's nothing worse than having a corneal abrasion and trying to sleep. And there are studies that show if you keep the eye closed for longer periods of time, the tears, your natural tears are going to lubricate and you don't run the risk of constantly re-scratching or sloughing off more of that cornea. So consider this treatment, five milligrams, night one, five milligrams, night two, patients are going to love you for it. And, and if it's, you're not it's better, if you're not better after one to two days, that's a red flag that do I have the right diagnosis? That's a good feedback mechanism because cor the cornea is phenomenal for healing. So if it's not better, if you're not like life is so much better in 24 to 48 hours, that needs a reassessment. That needs another looky-loo. We got to see that Absolutely. eyeball again. Yeah. So that's really important. And I know, I know, oh, you like dad jokes, right, Mike? Okay, <laughs> here dad, we go. So here I we go. Mandatory. I know we're just scratching the surface on this issue. Oh, but I like it. If you want to know more, I do have a like it's a 40-minute podcast on a 
structured critical exam with an ophthalmologist looking at this paper because I would encourage people to be skeptical of anything they hear, even if they heard it from me. <laughs> so go back, mm -hmm. read the original article, check out our structured critical appraisal, listen to the ophthalmologist who I have on, and then reflect, hmm, how, how would this fit in my practice and in my patient population? Yeah, and we'll put that all in the liner notes. I love this discussion, and I know it seems like we took a hard left out of clinical medicine to talk about things like collegiality, to talk about interpersonal discussion, but I mean, this is where emergency medicine gets really hard, honestly. You know, like, we, it's easy to diagnose and to hit a, a button on the EMR here, but these discussions, this, these agreements between different clinicians, especially, you know, we're talking about PAs and NPs in emergency medicine, this is where sometimes people get forced out or pushed out or just throw up their hands and leave medicine or emergency medicine because of these hard discussions. And, uh, you know, I, I've been at fault of this before. Sometimes when I'll talk to folks on Facebook or Twitter, you know, it's about finding where is the other person wrong? Where are the soft spots that I can poke at? But it sounds like you and Dr. Glockenflecken, which I, who I've been a fan of for a long time, you guys took the opposite approach. Let's figure out where the two of us you know, an emergency medicine and an ophthalmologist, how could we get together in this crazy world? But let's figure out where the two of us could be right. Let's find our common areas first and agree on something in the middle. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to an ophthalmologist on Twitter. Uh, he was out of Sacramento, California, and he was very, um, yeah, I, I, I did that for you, Martha. He was very <laughs> um, firm in his uh, held position and... I don't respond to tone. Um, I follow Graham's hierarchy of disagreement. I'm happy to talk about the arguments and have respectful conversations. And so that happened over a 24 hour period. And he was quite firm on this. This is something that should not be done. And huge shout out to him. 24 hours later, he gets on Twitter. He's reflected upon the discussion we've had, the arguments mm. that have been put forward the evidence that's been presented and said, you know what, my preconceived notions, they weren't right. And I'm changing my position. And that a short course of less than 48 hours, and you're sure that it's a simple corneal abrasion, all the caveats of the patients that were included and excluded from the study, you know, it's effective and it's probably safe to do. And so no longer yeah. is it that thou shalt not do that and you're not practicing the best medicine possible. And so I really, you know, that rarely happens. And that takes a huge level of maturity and insight. And so I, I hope that we can continue those kind of conversations. Absolutely. Speaking of an additional conversation, I do want to move us a little bit forward here um, as we get to the end of the podcast to talk about this recent SGEM paper you discussed um, in regards to APPs, versus physicians, who orders more tests? So Ken, um, just transitioning here, tell us a little bit about this study. Yeah, so it's nice to go from, you know, something that is, um, you know, really controversial about should you use a topical <laughs> anesthetic for 24 hours and a simple corneal abrasion to something that isn't controversial at all. Right, uh, right. PAs and NPs right. working on this in stuff. the emergency yeah. department. <laughs> you know, everybody is on the same page. And uh, if you are a fan of the Big Bang, uh, sarcasm alert. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, so, yeah, this was a study by Jesse Pines. 
and colleagues. And what they were looking at in this study that we just covered on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine was addressing this issue that's brought up, maybe you guys have heard it, that PAs and NPs, because their training is different. Notice how I didn't say lacking or less. I said different because that's what it is. It's different than physicians training that they will order more tests, more investigations, and be more likely to admit the same patients compared to a physician. So you could, that, that was the rationalization that, you know, that's in their experience. Well, now we have data on that. And the data looked at chest pain and abdominal pain. So it didn't look at all comers to the emergency department, chest pain and abdominal pain. They pulled those out of their data set and said, all right, how are they worked up? Do they get more tests, more x-rays, more images, more ECGs, more troponins, more this, more that, or less? And are they more likely to get admitted or less likely to get admitted compared to a physician? And they match the cases. Should uh, You guys look pensive. Do you want to know the results? I want to yeah, know. Yeah, let's hear it. Even though I already know There them. was no statistical <laughs> difference. But if there was a trend, the trend was towards advanced practice providers not ordering as many tests and not admitting as many patients. So how do you think huh. that could be rationalized? Oh, well, I guess they don't know the things they don't know and they should have ordered more tests. <laughs> but, you know, well, like you can see how it could be twisted, right? Okay. And, yeah. And, I, you know, and it's just, I don't, they're the same. They're the same. The, the data set said the workup is the same for chest pain and belly pain, no matter who was working you up in the emergency department. Right, that's that's the conclusion, you know. And I have about a six-minute rant that uh, can you so graciously let me put on your podcast uh, for this month. So we'll include that in the liner notes. I'm not going to do the whole rant here, but essentially, when you look at a patient with chest pain or abdominal pain, whether you're a physician or an APP, you look at that patient, and you have a set of guidelines and algorithms and tests that you order for those things. In fact, I make an argument, you know, that our nurses, our wonderful nurses, put these orders in for us. In triage, they know what to do. And those patients, when they come back to the department... Uh, they already have an you know, ECG, been... a trope, a right. liver function I mean, test. Are... It's, all, it's, it's like the results, <laughs> and you're going through the results and taking the history after. Right. If anything, I would then argue that if you are partnering with a physician on a case, that the physician may actually order more tests because they might say, hey, let's add this on. Let's do that. You've discussed it with me. Now, again, in this particular study, they did not have cases where they were collaborating in that way. However, what I would like to say in conclusion, um, because I said I wasn't going to rant, is that when I say when I see an abdominal pain or a chest pain sign in, I'm all over that. To me, uh, they're pretty straightforward workups. Now, of course, they're zebras, and abdominal pain is more tricky to me than chest pain, um, just because abdominal pain can sometimes be something cardiac. But uh, I pick those patients up. These are good patients to take. Well, they, they, they actually eliminated the highest acuity patients and the lowest acuity patients and had those uh, patients from the middle of the spectrum, not the highest and the lowest, the outliers of the sickest of the sick and the sort of fast track patients. And, you know, uh, PAs and NPs saw a lot of high acuity patients as well in that data set. So it, they were comparing apples to apples as best they could. 
You know, the thing, though, is they did not sort of list out all the comorbidities and other health issues that these patients might have. So these patients actually may have been way more complex than um, we thought. Well, the, the physicians did see older patients with mo- more comorbidities, and PAs and NPs saw uh, younger patients with less comorbidities. But even after adjustments and things like that with propensity score matching and the things that they can do, which are considered statistical jujitsu, because it wasn't a randomized <laughs> control trial— you know, the bottom line is it really didn't make a difference. Now, in this study, you have to remember, does it apply to your patient population? How do you uh, interact with APPs? I work with APPs. The, the way I interact with them is I quote 80s movies. We're colleagues. We work together on team patient. And there's not this hierarchy but in other areas, um, th- they may be working independently without supervision. With other uh, places, they may be very strict and can't, um, you know, are controlled by um, very strict protocols. In this data set, this was a large single company working in multiple states, uh, multiple hospitals, I think 90 hospitals, looking at hundreds of thousands of patients. Uh, but it's very protocolized. And does that apply? to how your practice environment and collaborative care works. I don't know. So be skeptical, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Good point. Um, all right. Uh, I got to move us along for our final our final uh, part of the podcast, and that is to answer this question. You know, there was a lot of conversation about the ceftriaxone in regards to the treatment of gonorrhea. And Mike... You know, what do you want to say about that to start? Well, you know, you look at the guidelines, and it's interesting how the CDC guidelines are clear. It says, I am ceftriaxone, 500 milligrams. Often in uh, treatment guidelines, you'll see uh, I am slash IV. But in these guidelines, it clearly says I am only. You know, um, this is kind of a topic because why? Why does it have to be IM? Is there some sort of depot effect that is required? Are the pharmacokinetics so wildly different in this context that it makes a difference as far as clinical outcome? You know, Martha has a lot of contacts with regards to uh, farm MDs or farm Ds, and she talked to a lot of folks in regards to this. And, you know, we did a good literature search there. There was one good discussion about this specifically in 2012, about 10 years ago, on this great website, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine by Brian Hayes. He talked about how this package insert for ceftriaxone, it, it mentions plasma concentrations with regards to IM versus IV administration and how they are almost identical through about 24 hours, either IM or IV. And the urine concentrations, if we're trying to treat a cystitis, urethritis, what have you, those urine concentrations are also very similar, 24 to 48 hours after the dose. According to the 2012 CDC report, the minimum inhibitory concentration, the MIC, for gonorrhea strains that are needed with ceftriaxone is one, or sorry, 0.125 micrograms per ml. IV therapy provides concentrations above this resistance cutoff well after a day or two, 24 to 48 hours, which is similar to IM therapy. Okay, so I do have a really long rant about this, but I'm going to try to keep it short. And I also <laughs> want Ken to weigh in. So just just a couple of things. I did read that piece uh, from about 10 years ago, right? Um, and it is a great website. But I also um, talked 
to several other people, um, there are a team of experts on the CDC that treat this with some kind of Monte Carlo modeling, as I'd like to say. So using somewhat of a mixed art with science. And the people I talked to were infectious disease people and emergency department specialists, some at UC Davis, including Dr. Karen Wong, Dr. Larissa May. I also spoke to a very famous farm MD, Dr. Earl Siegel. I have him on speed dial. He saves me a lot of times. Um, And he's the former director of the Drug and Poison Center at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where he was there for about 40 years. And he's a clinical expert. And they all, all of these people, okay, they all did their homework and they looked up stuff and we talked about it. And they said that even if we gave intravenous treatment for gonorrhea in light of a patient having an IV in place, this would technically be going against the guidelines. And they also reminded me that there was scant literature on this topic. So remember, ceftriaxone is bacterial cidal, and that is what is needed to treat urogenital gonorrhea. And that means there has to be this particular time above the MYC to be successful. And that's where they sort of argue that this sort of depot idea comes into play with the shot. And second, since ceftriaxone needs to kill the bacteria, it needs to do that for about 12 to 24 hours. The IM shot will allow this to happen over a longer period of time. That is the theory. Um, so none theory. of the... Yeah. So none of these people are convinced that the IV formulation will do the same magic, although they all said it's possible. Right. So then but let's let's just put this in the hands of two of our pioneers in EM. Dr. Rick Bucata and Dr. Jim Roberts, they both said, Martha, this is a moot point. Okay, that about 99 percent of these patients are not going to have an IV. So we're just giving it IM. Um, But you know, I came across this one paper in the Journal of um, American Family Physician in 2009, February edition, where they looked at the evidence for using IM injections in outpatient practice. And in this paper, for most patients, the evidence does not support uh, the IM route over the oral route for most antibiotics, corticosteroids, and NSAIDs, NSAIDs or even vitamin B12, although that's kind of mixed. But what they did mention was that intermuscular antibiotics are indicated sometimes for infections, and that includes intermuscular penicillin G or bicillin, um, and it's also recommended for ceftriaxone for the treatment of gonorrhea, and they have that as evidence rating A. And I'll remind you that that means it's consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. Done rant. Yeah. So, you know, to summarize... These are recommendations. These are guidelines. They're not rules. There are very few unbreakable rules in emergency medicine, and we have to improvise all the time based on the patient in front of us. There are similar pharmacokinetic functions between the IM and IV routes, but you know, in the end, do you have something that you can just throw on the table as your you know, winning card saying, ah, this evidence proves that IV is acceptable here? No. So, As an emergency medicine PA or an NP, our recommendation is still to follow the guidelines from the CDC to give 500 milligrams intramuscular for the uh, traditional ceftriaxone patient, of course, going up to one gram for our uh, over 150 kilogram patients here. But if you wanted to go IV, 
as an EMPA or NP, I think you discuss it with your attending physician, maybe ahead of time if you're working solo practice, you know, either in urgent care or whatever else here, and then to mention it in your medical decision-making process uh, section of your chart. Hey, I consider both routes. I consider the pharmacokinetics. I consider the risks and benefits of putting another hole in this patient where they could have another bad outcome from this hole. And I decided to go the IV route if that's what you wanted to do. So I think there are ways to acquit yourself in the chart saying that you considered it instead of just blindly going uh, against guidelines without considering it. Would you like um would you like a uh my 2 cents worth? I guess my mine would be 1.75 cents. I would like the oblique view. Yeah, definitely. Well, I like what Mike said. And as an emergency physician and as a clinician in general, they're called guidelines. It's in the name. Not, you have to do this, this is the rule, thou shalt provide, thou shalt not provide. It says guide. And most guidelines, most evidence is not strong evidence. And so it should guide our care, it should inform our care, but guidelines shouldn't dictate our care. And like you said, Mike, what you need to do is think about the patient. And so if you've got a patient, they're in for whatever their chief complaint was, and it turns out that it is a sexually transmitted infection or that you're worried about gonorrhea, and you've got a line in or the line was started at triage, just go to the patient and have shared decision-making. And that shared decision-making yes. is, listen, the guidelines say that we're supposed to give you this needle into the muscle. And, you know, it's, it's not inconsequential. It's not the end of the world, but it is painful to get a, you know, a, a fairly large IM dose. Uh, you've got this tube in your arm already. We could give you the same medicine that way. We don't have strong evidence one way or the other saying one is better than the other when it comes to clinical cure rate. There's some hypotheses behind it, um, but uh, we really don't have strong evidence. Would you like me to follow the guidelines that say give you the intermuscular injection, or would you like us just to hang it and put it through the plastic tube in your arm? And either way, I'm okay with either response. Right, and the, most of the time the patients are going to be like, yo, yo, I got to go. When is it? Just do whatever is faster, please. Yeah, no, and, and it I might say, you know, oh, the ceftriaxone <laughs> takes 30 minutes to run in or something like that, yeah. and the IM injection takes five minutes to get drop and give the injection and go. And so again, what does the patient value or prefer? If they're like, oh, you know, it was scary enough getting the first needle. Like, so we can't, I'm always saying this, the easiest way to find out what a patient prefers, and I'm just spitballing here, ask them what they prefer. Because what we prefer and what they prefer may be dissonant may not be the same and i might be like oh i got the thing i'm you know i don't have to be anywhere close my eyes sit back for half an hour and take take the iv but like you said martha maybe you're just i'm a go 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 person i got it i got things to do i got things on my list just give me the shot get me out of here doc Right. Well, hopefully that answers some of the questions about gonorrhea, IM versus IV, or maybe it adds more to your confusion. But either way, we're going to end the show for uh, talking about our last subject here, which is our trivia question. It's going to be short and sweet, and then we will give you the answer on the next show. So this month, if you get the trivia question correct you are going to win 20% off any CCME course you you want. That's right. Ooh. And any CCME course you want. And you can buy it for yourself, you can give it to a friend, but it's your 20% off. So here is the question. 
When were the first guidelines for CPR published and by who? Right? So we like these two-part questions that really make you think. When were the first guidelines for CPR published and by who? So email us your guesses at two, the number two, twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number two, viewcast at gmail.com. And tell us uh, who you want to give a shout out to if you want to give away your 20% or keep it for yourself. So it's got to be something like I can't play to win, right? I'm not, I'm not allowed to win. You're not. You are excluded from the contest just like I couldn't tell you who the first nurse practitioner was and when. 1965. In your contest um, for the Skeptic's Guide. Right? Two. View. The number two. Two. Uh Oh, I like that. View. Part of the two. View. And then the oblique. There you go. This is this is great for an audio podcast. You'll have to go to the YouTube <laughs> to check out the fascinating video that Ken is giving us right now. But I love the two of you uh, hand signal. That's going to be our gang sign in Las Vegas, I think. Okay. Well, you know, Ken, thanks. I consider you my brother from another motherland, if you get it. I'm also a, a Canadian by birth here. So thanks, Ken, for coming on, providing the oblique view. If you today. ever need me to come back and give another oblique view, I'm happy to oblige. Uh, that'd be awesome. And remember, you got to check out the show notes so we can put all the information about the papers we discussed, Ken's website, and his studies that he reviews as well. Give us your feedback by sending us an email. Come to our course in July in Las Vegas, of course, post-vaccine. That's July 11th through the 16th. And we also want to let you know that if you listen to Ken's podcast, you can get CME credit just for listening. So yes. you, can, you can check that out by clicking on the link in our show notes. Great. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe on Apple iTunes Podcast, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're in all those big directories now. You got to search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency. Search for all those three terms. It'll come right up. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Emergency Medical Education, and you'll catch the video version. You can see everything we were doing horsing around on the video today. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes. That's at twoview.fireside.fm. And check out our courses for EKG and imaging boot camps, ultrasound courses, emergency medicine boot camps, the acute care series, and more. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thanks for tuning in. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. <laughs>